kids, just stand up where you are. We want to pray over you before you head out this morning. So, yeah, right where you are, just stand up. All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Father, you have saved us, and now we ask that you would feed us with your word, not just in this room, but I pray that our children be fed with the word as they go into kids' praise this morning. You have given us ears to hear, and now, Father, I pray you would give us minds to understand. Jesus, the, the fullness of God dwells in you. Now fill us with the knowledge of you as the water fills the seas. And I pray that you would do the same for our children, Lord, that their hearts would be saturated with your word and with your knowledge. Jesus, your cross speaks of your great love for us. Now show us that love by speaking to us from the Bible. Holy Spirit, you have made our hearts alive. Now teach us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. You have breathed out the word, Holy Spirit. Now help us to be transformed by it. We thank you, God, for our salvation. Now sanctify your people through the preaching of your revelation, not just the adults in the room, God, but sanctify our children, Lord. Save our children and sanctify our children and raise them up, Lord, as a generation with a powerful witness for you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, the kids are going to head out. If you have a Bible, you can open it to the book of Acts. That's where we will be together. Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 26. And as we turn there, I want to ask you a question this morning. I don't want you to feel guilty about your answer to the question, whatever it may be. That's not the point of it. I don't want you to be discouraged. Uh, that is not my desire as I ask this question. It's just a question to gauge where we are at when it comes to sharing the gospel. And the question is this, when is the last time that you shared the gospel with someone? When is the last time that you shared the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ with someone? Was it a day ago? Was it a week ago? Was it a month ago? Was it in the last year? Have you ever shared the gospel of Jesus with someone? Ever? As Paul writes to the Romans, he describes beautiful feet. And feet are not something I typically think of as beautiful. They're kind of like the tires of the body, right? When you stop and you look at a car, unless you're like one of those weird car people, typically the tires are not the first point of beauty. Even if they're the best of tires, they're pretty utilitarian. They get a job done. It's the rest of the car that tends to catch the eye. And the lack of beauty in the foot would have been even more true in the culture that the Roman church was born in. And as Paul writes to them, he writes to a world that understands the foot to be the filthiest part of the body, fit to only be cleaned by servants. And yet Paul says this as he quotes Isaiah, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Have your feet been beautified by the preaching of the gospel? Have you shared the great hope that the Lord has etched onto your heart? 
Was there a time in your life in which you were a very purposeful evangelist? That you woke up in the morning and you pretty much went, out through, uh, went, went throughout your day and, and you were just led wherever the Lord Jesus would take you, talking to whoever the Lord Jesus would take you to. You just couldn't wait to share the gospel, to share the hope that is within you, to share about eternal life, to share Jesus. If that's who you used to be, a purposeful evangelist, but that time has come and gone, well, what has happened? What has happened? God wants purposeful evangelists. He wants you to be a purposeful evangelist. First and foremost, in the house that you live in. But also in the school that you attend. And in the workplace that you go to in your long-term care facility for some of our brothers and sisters that are watching on the live stream this morning or who even are here, at the park that you take your dog to, at the game that you take your kid to, at your local convenience store, at the hospital bed. The believers that sit to your right and your left this morning, God wants them to be a purposeful evangelist. There's no doubt about that. However, He also wants you you, brother and sister, to be a purposeful evangelist. His desire is to use your life to share life with this dying world. We live in Babylon. We've been learning about that on Wednesday nights in our study of Revelation. How Babylon represents the evil network of humanity, the fallen world that we live in. We live in a perishing Babylon, and God wants to use you to take good news to a perishing Babylon. This morning, we see our brother Philip being a purposeful evangelist. Last time we saw him, he was in Samaria, being a purposeful evangelist there, preaching the gospel. Remember, the whole crowd was listening to him with one accord, supernatural. The whole city was filled with joy. Philip was filled with joy. The people hearing him, they were filled with joy. And now this man of God who was doing signs and wonders is being sent by God to another region And through his obedience, we get a bird's eye view into the life of a purposeful evangelist. And through his obedience, we see the gospel continuing to advance, now going beyond Samaria to the very edges of the Roman Empire. And so I'll read the text, and then we'll just have two teaching points this morning after we get done working through the passage. Acts 8, starting in verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. There was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the Spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, 
About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? And Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? He commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and he passed through, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. We start this morning by looking at the providential hand of God in this passage and see all the ways he is moving the events of history along to bring Philip to this eunuch at the right moment. You can see how the God of the universe is arranging the circumstances of this eunuch's day of salvation. An angel of the Lord comes to Philip and tells him to rise and to go toward the south to the road that goes from Jerusalem down to Gaza. And Luke comments and says that this is a desert place, meaning it's remote. This is the edge of the known world, the edge of the Roman Empire. It's the last stop before you head off into a sun-scorched desert. Which means that if Philip is going to this place, he's only going there for one reason, which is to be obedient to the Lord. There's no other reason to go there. You don't go vacationing there. You don't go sightseeing there. He's on a spiritual business trip, and he is directed by the Lord himself. We know that because he has received his marching orders from an angel, from one of the Lord's messengers. And while Philip is the one being sent, we have the Lord arranging for him a meeting with an Ethiopian eunuch. And this eunuch has been visiting Jerusalem to worship. He's a treasurer in the court of Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians. Now, Philip doesn't know any of this. He's just obedient. He's just going to the remote place that the angel is directing him to, that the Lord is directing him to. The eunuch that he's going to meet there is what you would call a God-fearer. It's not a full convert to Judaism, but it is a Gentile who is practicing part of Judaism, meaning they have rejected the Greco-Roman spirituality around them because they have found it to be lacking, and they're dabbling in the faith of the Hebrews. Cornelius will be much like this man when we get to chapter 10. I have a heart for God-fearers because my father, before he came to Christ, was a God-fearer. He didn't fully understand the gospel, but the day that he was led to Christ by some co-workers, he had a piece of it. He understood a bit about who God was, a bit about who Jesus was. He had fear for him. He had reverence for him. For example, even before he was a Christian, my dad wouldn't let us listen to songs in the house that said anything bad about Jesus. Wasn't a Christian, but you're not talking bad about Jesus in this house, right? Because he was a God-fearer. And so here, this eunuch would have been a God-fearer. Doesn't have the full picture of God's promise of salvation, but he's dabbling. He's dabbling, and he has reverence for the Lord. As a Gentile God-fearer who has just visited Jerusalem, though, he's only allowed to go so far under the Old Covenant. First century Judaism had deemed Gentiles unclean. They couldn't go into the inner part of the temple. They couldn't go beyond the courtyard of the Gentiles. In the minds of first century Jews, they were set apart by God in the Exodus, and the Gentiles were not. And so they could go no further than the assigned courtyard outside. 
Plus, according to Old Testament law, a eunuch was not able to be a part of temple worship because of his physical state. Eunuchs had their male private parts altered. So they would be a non-threatening servant, a loyal servant wherever they belonged. If a eunuch cannot have a son, that son cannot rise up in court and stage a coup. And so they were safe servants to keep around and to entrust a lot of responsibility to. But the law kept a eunuch from the assembly of worshipers. Deuteronomy 23.1 says, No one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. So this man's on his way back home from worshiping, but he's only been able to worship so much. And now he's got the scroll of Isaiah open. He's reading it as Philip is sent to him. In verse 29, we see that Philip is sent over to the chariot by the prompting words of the Spirit of God. It's the Holy Spirit who sends Philip to go and run up alongside the chariot. And as he does it, he hears this man reading from Isaiah. By the way, the fact that he is a scroll is pretty amazing, and that shows that he's got access to wealth as the treasurer of the court of the queen. It's no surprise. But normal people just didn't have scrolls, reading from the scrolls. So this man's in a very privileged situation. But Philip asks, do you understand what you're reading? And the eunuch says, well, how can I unless someone guides me? I, I don't have the answers. They're not in the back of the scroll here. And so Philip is invited into the chariot. And in that chariot, Philip will share the good news of Jesus Christ with the man. And this church is evangelism. This is what evangelism is. People have all sorts of different definitions of of different types of evangelism. But listen, we don't need to complicate things here. J.I. Packer says, how then should evangelism be defined? The New Testament answer is very simple. According to the New Testament, evangelism is just preaching the gospel, the evangel. It is a work of communication in which Christians make themselves mouthpieces for God's message of mercy to sinners. And that's it. That's what evangelism is. It is the transmission of the saving gospel of Jesus Christ from the mouths of Christians to the ears of people who need it. That is evangelism. We don't need to complicate it. We don't need to try to add a bunch of stuff to it. It's that. It's what you see Philip doing in this passage. Taking the gospel and verbally sharing it with somebody so that they would hear the word of the Lord, so that they could believe, so they could be saved. In verses 32 and 33, we see the passage of Scripture that the eunuch is reading. It's from Isaiah 53, 7 and 8. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. There's an interpretive conundrum here for the eunuch. He wonders, is Isaiah writing this about somebody else? Or is Isaiah writing this about himself? Many Jewish people taught during that time that Isaiah wrote about himself. Or that Isaiah wrote about Israel. In fact, there are still Jewish people today who believe that this is a passage about Isaiah or this is a passage about Israel itself. 
But we know what Philip knows. That Isaiah 53, 7 and 8 are so clearly about the Lord Jesus Christ. It's Jesus who was oppressed and afflicted. It was Jesus who opened not his mouth. It was Jesus who was silent like a sheep before his shearers. Luke 23, verse 8 says, When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. Jesus is the one led silently to the slaughter. The glorious Son of God, humiliated at Calvary, denied justice in the sense that the just is dying for the unjust. The sinless one is dying in the place of sinners. He is the one whose life is taken away from the earth, but only for three days. Because Isaiah 53 also tells us that the suffering servant would see his days prolonged. Verse 35 says, Philip opens his mouth and beginning from Isaiah 53, 7 and 8, he begins to explain the gospel of Jesus to this man. Where have we seen this before? Well, when we were in the book of Luke and when uh, our friend Timothy Marr from Reformation Christian Fellowship was here preaching just about a month ago, we saw Jesus doing this on the Emmaus Road. Luke 24, verse 27, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning himself. What all did Philip tell this man? Well, we assume that he told him how to be saved. That he explained repentance and faith because the man receives the gospel. He becomes a Christian, so we can assume that he was told that. We can assume that Philip gives him a clear explanation of believer's baptism because the man is asking for baptism and some roadside water in verse 37. But considering the context, considering what is said that beginning with this scripture, he told him everything about the Lord Jesus, Maybe Philip just kept walking the man through the scroll that was in his hands. Because if you read Isaiah, chapter 53 is about the suffering servant, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who comes to pay for the sins of his people. But you keep going on in the scroll, you get to chapter 54, where God promises that exile and discipline will not carry on forever. There will be this future time of restoration that will come to the people of Israel. Isaiah 54, 8, In overflowing anger for a moment, I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. Then you get to Isaiah 55, where the prophet looks to the sweet compassion of God and how God's Word will accomplish its purpose and ultimately a new creation will come about that will never pass away. Isaiah 55, verse 10, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. 
And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Maybe Philip walked him through 53 and 54 and 55. And maybe the eunuch said, hey, that's great. The Lord's servant came to die for his people. Awesome. The Lord's kindness came to bring restoration to his people. A-okay. The Lord's merciful compassion will see his word come to pass. A new creation will be established where the briar will be gone and the myrtle will replace it. The thorn will be gone. The cypress will replace it. All that's wonderful for the people of the Lord, but I'm a foreign eunuch. And I can't be a part of that. So that's great, Philip, but it ain't for me. And then you get to 56. Listen to what the Word of the Lord says just a few chapters from where He is sharing with this eunuch. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from His people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me, who hold fast my covenant. I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to Him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be His servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it, and holds fast My covenant, these I will bring to My holy mountain, and make them joyful in My house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on My altar. For My house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples." The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to Him besides those already gathered. The good news for this eunuch is that in the new covenant, having Abraham's blood or bearing his mark in circumcision isn't going to do anything for you. It never did. The people of the Old Covenant repented of their sin. They looked forward in faith to the coming Messiah. The people of the New Covenant do the same, looking back in faith to Christ who has been revealed. And so was Philip able to look at this man and say, the Messiah who died for you in chapter 53 promises full kingdom citizenship to you in chapter 56. Even a foreign eunuch like you. We don't know. We don't know if that was the message that Philip preached. We don't know if he walked him down the, we have the Romans road, I'll call it the Isaiah Isle, okay? We don't know. What we do know is the promise is there. And what we do know is that in receiving Christ, this man who could not enter the assembly of Israel is now promised to be a co-heir in the kingdom. And we do know that the gospel of Jesus Christ is for foreign eunuchs, just like we know it is for me and you. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, Paul says, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. To everyone who believes beliefs this man's baptized and then philip is carried away the next thing you know 
Philip's in Azotus doing ministry, which is 20 miles from Gaza. So that's, that's some journey that's going to take place basically in an instant. How did that happen? We don't know. Uh, why did it happen? We can only assume it's because he's had great success in Samaria. God kept him moving. He saw immediate fruit in, in Gaza with the repentance of this eunuch, and yet God keeps him moving. And so it seems like all this moving around is about the gospel. It's about the glory of the Lord. It's about everywhere Philip goes, he takes the light. He takes the good news. And now through Philip, the gospel has reached the edges of the Roman Empire. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. It's starting to puncture the ends of the earth. And that will only continue in the conversion of the apostle to the Gentiles. Saul who we know as our brother Paul, and that's coming as we get to chapter 9. I want to spend the rest of our time just looking at two teaching points from this account of Philip's preaching to the Ethiopian. Two observations for us. One has to do with awareness. The other has to do with action. Here's the first, and it's more about the awareness. Number one, purposeful evangelist. Like Philip, purposeful evangelists are yielded to God's providence. Purposeful evangelists are yielded to God's providence. I want you to notice how many things God is in control of in this passage this morning. An angel of the Lord comes to Philip. We can assume the angel comes at the decree of God since the angels of the Lord are obedient messengers of the Lord. They're not operating in their own agenda. They're operating on the Lord's agenda. So it's God's decree that this angel of the Lord would have come to Philip. So he's in control of that. Philip goes there. It just happens to be this Ethiopian eunuch there who's coming through, a God-fearer who's perusing the scroll of Isaiah. Who's in control of that? The Lord. Who tells Philip to run over and join the chariot? Spirit of the Lord. And then the passage the man is in is a clear messianic prophecy about the death of the Lord Jesus, plus in its context, it's located right next to this passage in Isaiah 56 with clear great news for eunuchs. Then in verse 36, there just happens to be water sufficient for baptism. And in verse 40, as the evangelism of this eunuch is wrapped up, Philip is whisked away to Azotus. Who's in control of that? Who's the, the one arranging the travel plans for Philip? It's the Lord. The world might look at all of these events and say it's just happenstance. A convergence of circumstances that can only be attributed to dumb luck. The naturalist who claims that knowledge can only be apprehended, from, uh, apprehended by what you can measure and what you can quantify. They would look at this and say it's all just nature's chaotic coincidence. After all, we're all just bags of chemicals walking around, banging into each other. No real purpose. No divine providence, certainly. But you and I know better. We know that God is a providential God. Powerfully in preserving, uh, powerfully preserving and, and, and governing his entire creation and all of his creatures. 
including their actions. And he's doing it all according to his divine purpose. This is what we are talking about when we talk about God's providence. We're talking about God not being a spectator when it comes to this world that he has created and the people who live in it. He's present everywhere. He's governing everywhere. And if he were to remove his providential hand of governance, even just for a moment, existence would come apart at the seams. But it's not in his nature to do that because he's a sovereign governor. That's who he is. And his providence is his sovereignty being exercised for his purposes at every moment. From the biggest, most complex things that you can imagine to the smallest, the hand of God is in control. Lorraine Botner, talking about this, says, Every raindrop and every snowflake which falls from the cloud, every insect which moves, every plant which grows, every grain of dust which floats in the air has had certain definite causes and will have certain definite effects. Each is a link in the chain of events, and many of the great events of history have turned on these apparently insignificant things. See, we all think we're these autonomous agents moving around in God's world, totally free to do whatever we would like at any time. But I want you to stop and think this morning about how much you have not chosen. You didn't choose where you would be born. You were not consulted. You didn't choose who your parents would be. You didn't choose what you would look like. I look more like my mom than my dad. My sister looks more like my dad than my mom. We didn't sign up for that. I didn't sign up to look like Fred McCormick, my grandfather. He would have told you, you don't want to sign up for that. That's what he would have said. I did not choose to grow up in a home with a dad who had become a Christian and then lead his family to the Lord. I did not choose my intelligence level. I did not choose what sort of health I would be born with. I did not choose whether or not I would have artistic ability or the ability to be an orator or to be a banker. I have plenty of real choices that I make with real consequences, but there are simply times that I do not choose the circumstances I'm making them in. What the Scriptures show us is that nature... The animal world, the nations of the earth, individual people, the free acts that they commit, the sinful acts that they commit, fortunate events, unfortunate events, all of these are within God's providential control. That He is exercising His purposeful sovereignty to bring about His will each and every second of each and every day. Now, you might wonder, well, are we just puppets then being moved around on the strings of divine providence? Not according to Lorraine Botner. He says, but while the Bible repeatedly teaches that this providential control is universal, powerful, wise, and holy, it nowhere attempts to inform us how it is to be reconciled with man's free agency. All that we need to know is that God does govern His creatures and that His control over them is such that no violence is done to their natures. So no, we are not puppets. And yet God is indeed providentially governing every second of your life and He is never surprised. And that should comfort you in a myriad of ways, but especially in evangelism. Because what it means is while you might not know what God might be up to in somebody else's life, you barely know what He's up to in your own. 
as you within your nature are making choices, His governing could be seeing to it that your choices and somebody else's choices are intersecting. And just like Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8, you will have a divine appointment. That as you go about your day and you are on your way to your next task, you could be on your way to a providential appointment where you can share the good news of Jesus Christ. Not an accidental appointment, not a circumstantial appointment, but an appointment by God. As you are on your way home at night and you go, oh, I forgot to get milk yesterday. You say, I wonder why. I wonder why it would be the will of God for me to get milk tonight instead of last night. Maybe your forgetfulness the day before is all a part of God's providential plan to put you in front of a person that needs hope at Kroger. See, my Uncle Norman had a very peculiar way of fishing that he taught my dad and my dad handed down to me. And I've used it to varying degrees of success. He would get in a river with an open-faced reel and he would cast out a weedless grape worm because my Uncle Norman swore that no matter what's going on with the weather and no matter what's happening with the water, a weedless grape worm will get the job done. He would cast that thing out, fishing for smallmouth in the James, and he would butt the rod up against his stomach If you knew my Uncle Norman, there was plenty of room there. And then he would reel it in, and he would keep his finger right here on the line. And he would just hold it. And as he's reeling it in, he could feel everything that worm is doing as it's moving along. He could feel every little rock that the worm is going over, every little piece of seaweed it was getting caught in. And if a fish hit it, there was no question. He knew the very first strike of the smallmouth would be so obvious because Norman was aware. That middle finger feeling that line kept him aware. He was looking for it. And so when the fish would hit, he would set the hook. In Mark 1, Jesus says to his disciples, follow me and I will make you become fishers of what? Of men. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. This is a part of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. We're talking about following Jesus 101. We carry crosses. We pray as Jesus taught us, not as the Gentiles or as the Pharisees. We serve others. We love one another. We do good for one another, not letting the right hand know what the left is doing. We fish for men. It is basic discipleship. Some of us are not catching anything because we're not fishing. We're not alert. We're not aware to God's providential activity that is going on all around us because we've got our eyes on our own agendas, our own complaints, our own frustrations, our own anxieties. We're not looking to Christ who is seated above. We're looking to ourselves. And we need to get our eyes up off of what is going on around us onto the Lord so we can really see what is going on around us. So we can take the line of the Gospel and start dragging the bottom of the river. You go into a local restaurant a lot, there's probably a few reasons, right? If you've got a place that you just hit a lot, it's close to you, you like something they, they make there, it's convenient and friendly. 
Now, I'm assuming if you go there a lot, you start to notice some of the staff. And I can tell you, as somebody who worked in retail, anybody will tell you, if you worked in food service, you work in retail, you notice the regulars. Even if they never speak to you, you know the face of the regulars. Now, the world would say to you, you just happen to eat at this restaurant. You just happen to eat there. And they just happen to work there. You have no relationship with these human beings. You have no responsibility to these human beings. Mind your business, leave your tip, and move on with your life. But we can't do that. If we're going to be purposeful evangelists, we look at God's providential hand and we say, He has put me in this context. He's put these people in this context. And He has a purpose. That nothing in my life is on accident. And once you are convinced of that, once you come to see nothing in your life as being happenstance, you start looking at all of God's arrangements in your life as providential provisions. Provisions that He has given to you to fish with. You start thinking, I wonder what He wants to do with me in these waters. I wonder what He might want to do with me in this Mexican restaurant. I exist to glorify God here. I come here all the time. How does He want to use me in this place? Now you might say, well, Pastor, what does that look like? What does it look like to fish? Well, my answer is, it looks like leveraging. That's what a fisherman does, right? They look in their tackle box. What can I leverage in order to catch fish today? God has given you certain abilities. God has given you certain interests and you need to leverage them. So, for example, do you like comic books? Do you wear comic book shirts a couple days a week? Well, the next time you go to that restaurant and you're wearing a comic book shirt and somebody goes, hey, nice Avenger shirt. Well, friend, that's a vibration in the line. Oh, do you like Avengers? Do you read any DC? You're going to go see Aquaman? I might go see it with some people from my church. See that? Just slip that in there, right? And then if they go, well, where do you go to church? Well, that's a full-on strike on the line, is it not? And it's time to share the gospel. It's time to invite them to come to be a part of your church family. Now you are in a conversation that is happening in God's providential governance and, and you will be so pleased and joyful to be a part of it. I can promise you that. So sports, Christian t-shirts, shared experiences, music, TV shows, food, it all must be leveraged. I wear a lot of sports gear. I, I wear some pro wrestling gear. I've been a fan my whole life. For better or for worse, I wear some Christian t-shirts. And if I'm out and about and you want to say something to me about the Washington Commanders or Roman Reigns or the Trinity shirt that I'm wearing, well, it is on. Something hit the line. And it's time to feel it out. Is that a rock? Is that seaweed? Or do we have a nibble here? And quite often, you will find that the nibble is a pretty hard bite. And the next thing you know, you are full on fishing. But as we close, I want to say that this work must be intentional. It must be intentional. In the moment, it must be intentional. Because you're not going to share the gospel on accident too often. But even before that, you must be prepared. I remember when I was a kid and my dad would take me fishing. Before we would go fishing, he'd be out in the garage every night beforehand. He's out there getting ready, listening to Leonard Skinner, putting new lures on his line, making sure mine's not tangled, organizing the box. 
And he would always say, you don't want to get out on the water and be unprepared. It is no different in our evangelism. We must be prepared. So number two, purposeful evangelists are prepared for proclamation. Philip's ready. He's prepared to proclaim in this text. He's ready to teach this man that is reading from the scroll of Isaiah. He's ready to proclaim Christ to him. And that is not in a vacuum. We know this is how Philip lives his life. When they are selecting deacons to handle the widow controversy in Acts 6, we know from Philip's selection he's a man full of faith, a man full of the Holy Spirit. He's a man preaching and doing signs and wonders in Samaria. This boldness that he has, his knowledge, this powerful ministry, it leads us to believe that this is a man who loves the Word of God and this is a man who loves the God of the Word. This is a brother publicly and privately devoted to the Lord Jesus. See, the reality is is that we all evangelize, but we only evangelize for the things we're prepared to evangelize for. My team's going to win 10 games this year. We've got the number three overall defense in DVOA. We're ranked 13th in stopping the run last year, but we drafted this tackle out of A&M. He's a stud. Do you know why you can evangelize for your football team? Because you are publicly and privately devoted to your football team. And it shows in how you talk. You are prepared. So you evangelize for your team's success. You ever heard a mom get around another mom when she's got a solution for their kid's problem? Your kid's got eczema, try the spray. I had the spray two times on my kid. Never had eczema again. Better kid by Wednesday. Doesn't even disobey us anymore. Went past the eczema. All the way to the heart. A mom will go hard for something that has worked with her kid. She will prepare herself to evangelize for that product. Stats, test results, she's ready, right? And so this is the portion of the sermon about action. You must be aware of God's providential activity around you as much as you can be, but once the fish strikes the hook, you've got to be ready to proclaim, and that's where a lot of Christians back down. And I fear that we back down because it's not the natural overflow of our lives. Publicly we're devoted. Church attendance is faithful. Sermons are heard. Ministry service is done. But privately, not really reading our Bibles the way we should. We're not really praying the way we should or fasting or seeking the Lord. And so when the fish strikes, we're unprepared. Don't mishear me. I'm not saying that you need to go and memorize every answer about dinosaurs and LGBTQ issues in order to be able to share the gospel. In fact, I'm convinced evangelicalism has bought the lie that the way we prepare the church to evangelize is by another training course, another presentation to memorize. I think we're off on that. Instead of teaching another presentation to memorize that's going to feel like a sales pitch to the lost and dying world, we should be pushing people to their prayer closets and to their Bibles every day. How did the disciples learn to fish for men? By walking with Jesus. And that's what you need to be a purposeful evangelist. You need to fly to Him in prayer. You need to find Him in His Word. You need to seek Him in your closet. And then, from the rooftops, shout what he has whispered in your ear. The best evangelists I know are simply the most godly Christians. Pursue the Lord, prepare for his work. I'll ask the band to come back up and join us, and as they do, I'll say that 
Like a few of our church members, I've really grown to love spending time down at Yorktown Beach. What a, what a gem the Lord has given us here in our backyard with Yorktown Beach. Anyone who goes down there will tell you that there are Jehovah's Witnesses that camp out down there. They have little stands offering their cartoon literature. They teach in that literature that they hand out Jesus is not God, but a lesser God. That salvation is by good works. That the Holy Spirit is not God, but an impersonal force. That Jehovah is the only true name of God. That God chooses not to know the future. And that God is not triune. The Kingdom Hall of Yorktown preaches a brutal gospel that tells people that the way they're living is wrong and they offer them no way out of it. They offer a Jesus that cannot save, a Jesus that cannot bear sins and die because he's not God in the flesh, which is no Jesus at all. And do you know that these people are at Yorktown Beach two hours a day, six days a week? Because they're trying to work their way to heaven? Sure. But they're still down there trying to take your city, my city, our town. We, we had some dark stuff go down in our community this week. People are looking for answers. People are looking for hope. And they're down there saying, we'll give you hope. We got a Jesus for you. Trying to win people over to their Christless, obscene, neutered version of our faith. If they will pound the pavement for a lie, what will we do for the truth? Are your feet beautiful? It depends on the message they carry. Prepare yourself by coming to the feet of our Lord each day in word and in prayer. And then yield yourself to His providential hand and He will show you where to fish. Beautify your feet with the shoes of gospel peace and go. Soon, crushing, uh, Satan will, will be crushed by those gospel shoes. And so our time to fish is limited. Be a purposeful evangelist in the days that the Lord has given you. Father God, we can't share what we do not have. So Lord, if anyone is here and they're a God-fearer, they know you in part, but they don't know you. Then I pray that they would come to know you the only way they can know you, by turning from sin and putting faith in the Lord Jesus today. Today. And then how quickly you will send them out, Lord, to bear the good news. You do not wait. In fact, some of the most zealous evangelists are the new converts. So may today be a day of salvation, Lord, for those who do not know you, that they would turn from sin, agree with you that sin is evil, and turn away from it and put their full faith in your son Jesus Christ who lived a perfect life and died on the cross for them and rose from the grave to crush sin and death. They would find salvation and that it would be a salvation to tell of. And Lord, for those who know you, God, I pray that they would not leave here drowning in guilt, but that they would leave here abounding in excitement. Satan would love for us to feel beaten down. Oh, terrible Christians haven't shared your faith. Well, just keep your mouth shut. You're no good. What a silly message to believe. We are fishers of men. So we're not going to fix this by leaving the poles there, gathering dust. We've got to get them out. 
I pray that you would silence the enemy, Lord, and that today would be a day of obedience for us and that we would become aware of your providential work in our lives, your providential work around us, and that we would take action as prepared, purposeful evangelists, that we would bear the good news. And yes, God, we might fall on our face in some of these conversations. Yes, Lord, we might walk away feeling like we didn't do the best job. But it's not about us. We don't know how you will use the seeds that are planted, and so we trust in you. I pray we would trust in you as a church and just say yes. Just say yes to evangelism, yes to being fishers of men. And Lord, I know that through our clay jar efforts, you will bring people to salvation because it's what you do. It's what you do. So use your people, Lord, in our community. What will we do for the truth, Lord? I pray that we will give everything. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand. Let's sing.